Hello, I'm glad you're here. My name is Kevin McDonald, host of the following show, Positive Talk Radio. First, let me thank you for listening. I believe that you tuned in for a reason, to make a personal connection with courage and love, creating your dream life, and we're here to help. Terrific guests and topics presented in a fun, entertaining way. So stay tuned for this commercial-free episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to Positive Talk Radio. It's Monday morning at 9 a.m. in Seattle, and we are excited to have you here. Um, what is that? Uh, is there noise back there or something? No, never mind. That wasn't me. That was probably you, sir. <laughs> it couldn't it could have been me. I'm darn near perfect. Almost <laughs> the way. Of course, of course. Of course, of course. And that, by the way, that's Benny, and he is um, the board operator today and the producer of the show. And I thank Benny for being here. He's a little high from last night. He took the kids out trick or treat. Okay, phew, just want to make sure we're getting that clear. Which high you're talking about here? <laughs> it's a sugar high. Okay, phew. Okay, making sure. Yeah. It's not the so book. It's not the other sugar. The booger sugar. No, we're not going to do that. No, 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 no. The booger sugar? I I heard that last year for the first time, and I've been meaning to say at least once on the air, and I've succeeded, so we should be good now. (laughs) No, we're talking about Halloween candy. Thank you, Kevin. I'll jump in right now since I'm on the move. So the boys had a great day. We just took them out, ran a couple neighborhoods, and it was so nice to see everyone kind of back in business after the, you know, the year of COVID and all that and uh, the restrictions and stuff like that. A lot of families back out, a lot of smiling faces. So it was really cool. You know, I remember um, that Halloween from years and years ago. Mm -hmm. It was, it was just uh, in in the olden days, we would go out, Benny, honestly, we would go out without our parents when I was seven, (gasps) eight, nine years old. How dare you? (laughs) I know. I know you could not do that today, but in, in, in the olden days, your parents were too busy doing what they wanted to do. And exactly. They were happy to kick you out the door for a couple hours. Right. So. Come back. And when does, what is it? When the street lights come on? Yep. And then when I was a teenager, my mom used to say, now I'm sure we had a dozen eggs. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the toilet paper. <laughs> And, and we had, we've run out of toilet paper yeah. again. How can it be? Oh, there. <laughs> Got to figure that so one out. In those days, it was it was it was quite different than it is today. But right. uh, I'm glad I'm glad that you took the kidlets out and they had a really good time. Yeah, we did. Thank you. Now, question for you: Do you ration their uh, candy over a period of time, or do you let them go at it and then hope for the best? You kind of let them have like a free for all for maybe like the first day. You know, just like, you know, you get a couple extra pieces because it's Halloween. It's once a year. And then you kind of just like, all right, we need to take it easy a little bit. You know, that's me. Uh, I'm sure other parents run things different in their households. But I was I was kind of on that kind of vision, so to speak, when I grew up. Now, now did your kids, when they would come back from a house or after they saw what they got, mm-hmm. did they say, oh, man, we're not going back there again. We got lousy candy there. Actually, thankfully, all the houses, uh, as far as I saw, gave out some pretty decent uh, treats. Uh, we really didn't have one that was like, you know, like the two, you know, the the dentist on the street, you know, that gave out no no slamming the dentist. I'm, I know it's proactive. I get that cleaning teeth. But, you know, the yeah. ones that gave out raisins or something like you're like, really? Like, really? Like, this is one day a year. Can you give us something a little bit better than that? But we're okay. We used to have a lady that would give out popcorn balls. Yeah. And, and it was like, no, no, we're not going there. Yeah, right. I, I don't want any pink popcorn balls. Right. And, and, 
So anyway, uh, we've got a great guest f- for everybody today, and uh, his name is Raman Atta, K. Atta, and he is, you know, we talked a little bit before the show, and he is an extraordinarily talented man. He is a, uh, I, it's going to take me a while to read his bio, so we're going to just kind of get in and talking with him. He is a, um, he's got several PhDs. He is a, he's worked with Fortune 500 companies. He has worked with technology corporations, managing a Hall of Fame training organization, named as one of the top 10 in the world. He is taking the time, and I want to thank him again. It is midnight where he is. Uh, He's in Singapore, and it is uh, dark, and his kids are in bed, and he's gotten the opportunity to come and talk to us. Doctor, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's my pleasure to be at your show. Really appreciate In your world, when did you start feeling like you wanted to contribute the way that you have with, you've got 20 books out there. You, you're, you're talking about business and speed of business and productivity and how to make businesses work a little bit better and more seamlessly so that they can get more accomplished and all of that. Um, what got you started with that? That's a long story, uh, Kevin, but it basically starts with my childhood. When I was six months old, I contracted polio virus. And uh, it took away my ability to walk. So I became permanently disabled for life. So uh, right now I walk with crutches, but it has been a long journey for me to, you know, uh, go from that stage to come to current stage. And uh, as a kid in a very poor area of India, and there was no education, no facilities. So my best bet was to learn and be able to learn faster than other kids. And that was my X factor, how I could make my mark in the world. But uh, honestly, at that time, my race was with myself only. I wanted to get out of those situations. There was nothing in my mind at that point of time to impact the world. Impact I wanted to make was on myself first, but eventually I kind of learned so many things on, along the way. And I figured out my struggles are not alone. There are many other people, even in the best of the best countries, they have similar struggle that they don't get good guidance how to learn fast and better. So that's how I kind of got into this, where I started writing a lot of books. Uh, I went on for a lot of learning programs. You know, the first thing that strikes me is that, uh, you know, in in this country, uh, polio has been virtually eliminated, but worldwide, polio still is a scourge on us out there, isn't it? Um, that's right. I guess they are still at about 99% elimination rate. Uh, probably there are a few countries out there. They are not able to make it zero as of now. But uh, 40 years ago, it was pretty prevailing in India where I was born. Oh, yeah. So so I'm glad that, that we've made progress in that. But still, you know, but... I, you know, I, are you ever torn by the, the, the fact that had you not had this terrible disease, you would not have done what you've done? Or do you think that you would have done it anyway? I uh, know. I guess there is a lot of contribution my disability has made uh, to the point of what I am today. I sometimes wonder. In fact, I gave this just a TEDx talk uh, a month ago. And I was wondering while I was preparing for this one that if I had not been disabled, I probably wouldn't have been at this place 
because uh, disability gave me a lot of advantages which other kids didn't have. For example, I had a distraction-free time. I had no spoiler friends. I was contained in my room and my room became the world for me to learn anything. And uh, I was kind of learning things uh, ahead of my age at that time. For instance, uh, while kids were reading comics, I was reading Dale Carnegie's books. So that's what basically put me ahead of the curve. So I'm kind of wondering if I was a normal child, I would have possibly pretty normal childhood and I possibly couldn't have come here the way I am right now. You know, there are um, some folks out there that have also had some um, troubles in their life, some disabilities and some things like that. And um, what amazes me is that you've taken that and you've made it into something very, very special. And you've made a, a very big contribution to us. Um, what prevented you from saying, oh, woe is me, and I can't do this, and I'm, and I'm, I'm disabled? And, and what, what was it about you that made you um, get so excited about doing the work that you're doing? I would say in the beginning of many years of my life, I was exactly in that situation where I was cursing myself, why me? And uh, I thought that uh, I was an unfortunate guy uh, who somehow gotten all this. And I kept on asking that question for many years, why me? I never gotten a good answer. Every time it was more negative answers, those were coming from within me because uh, that was the thing that was putting me behind. It was getting me into social isolation. I thought I wasn't really wanted, I was undesired. So that thing actually happened with me and I think that happens with almost all other disabled people till the point they figure out a aha moment, they figure that, okay, you know, this is gonna be there. It's gonna be staying with me forever. And at that point of time, I realized that it's gonna be there. I need to accept it and this is part of my personality. Now, the moment I took it as part of my personality, I started thinking differently. Then I say, okay, it's gonna stay there. It's never gonna go away. So what are the things I can do better than others with whatever condition I have? So that occurred to me several years after my birth, not immediately. And that's where I kind of figured out that there was no point to struggling with the walls. Rather, I thought there was lots of windows available to me. And windows were in terms of a distraction-free time. Nobody was disturbing me. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I could run my vivid imagination, thinking and daydreaming to any extent without getting scolded. And I leveraged all that to then finally being a writer, being a poet, being a painter, and I do a lot of other things on the way. It's, it's amazing to me because there are, there are so many people that, that, that give up. And, and they, they don't have that aha moment. And I would like to hold you up, if I can, for as an example of somebody that um, had a disability, said, for a while, okay, I've got a disability and I'm sad about it, but, but you rose above it. And not only did you rise above it, you are considered to be one of the world authorities on one of on some of the uh, business things that we're going to talk about today. It's it's really is remarkable that the transition that you've made and the readings that you've done and the books that you've written. Matter of fact, we're going to talk about one of them, which is your latest book, uh, and the title of that again is uh, that one is Speed Matters. 
And when we talk about speed matters, we're talking about all things. We're talking about business. And, uh, and so describe what you, what you talk about in the book. In the book, I talk about a leadership thought process. The book I have written mostly for executives, uh, uh, leaders, uh, those who run the business or they lead the companies at the forefront. And uh, the kind of business we are right now in the entire world uh, during this pandemic, we keep on pushing the, the timelines. We keep on pushing our employees to finish the task quicker or faster. But uh, what I found out in my research is that's not the right kind of speed. That's not sustainable because ultimately it's going to result into burnout of our employees. And secondly, employees won't have enough time to learn thoroughly with the quality they really need to serve our customers. In reality, what I found is the best of the best organization, they are propagating a different kind of speed, what we call first time right speed. Now the question is, how do we develop our teams, our leaders, managers, and people in the company or organizations or businesses to go to a point where they can deliver first time right service or a product to the customer so that it doesn't need any rework. The overall time to deliver that service is shorter. So we are saying is that how do we shorten that time? That's the real sustainable speed. And the book is about achieving that kind of speed. How do you measure? How do you baseline? How do you even know whether you are going slower or faster compared to the market? So the book is all about uh, that science of speed. You know, it's interesting because um, employees in this country right now, employees are not uh, treated as well as we might otherwise treat them. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, in I believe it was August, we had the highest turnover rate that we've had in some time four and a half million people quit their jobs in this in this country and the reason is because they were unhappy with how they were being in many ways the work they were doing how they were being managed the stress that they were under because the bosses were saying more 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 and as you know you can only give so much and then you break and 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 so forth so how do you teach the people that you work with a different way because the way that it's been ingrained in in management for so many years is raise productivity, get the folks to do more with less, um, and that sort of. How do you teach? Because it's a radical thing. It's a whole new way of doing business, isn't it? Yes, correct. Uh, you're you're pretty right, Kevin. More often, managers or leaders they push employees to do more, and uh, the idea of more is you gotta need to finish each task or a project in a shorter time. So they push the boundaries. And I think that's the way they think. It's, it gives a sense of speed, but that sense of speed is very temporary. It doesn't really sustain longer. When we say that, okay, we are going to talk about first time right speed, but how the first time right speed looks like, how do you know that your employees are able to deliver first time right service or not? Do you have any measures? So the number one thing which I guide leaders is, let's figure out the way you're gonna measure that speed. And uh, interestingly, most of the managers and leaders, they don't have a way to measure a speed. And that's very ironic. We are in a, in a world which is moving so fast and we don't have a way to measure the speed of business and we don't have a way to relate how fast we develop our people. So part of that one is I give them a mechanism. I say, you know, first you need to have a mechanism, a matrix, how you're going to measure what's your first time right outcome of each employee. For instance, uh, for a salesperson, that uh, output can be 
making 10 sales per month consistently over the period of six months. If they are not consistent, if they are not making 10 sales every month, they are not there yet at first time right performance. But what happens is most organizations push them to make sales quickly. So they go with the wrong kind of speed. So we tell them, no, right kind of speed is you're going to need to pull in that point where this person gives you 10 sales consistently per month. And once they have achieved that, now they are at first time right speed. Now is the time when they start getting the efficiency. And now you start pulling in the target saying that, okay, you're going to need to now make 15 sales per month, or you're going to need to make one sales in three days time. So then you start start pushing those kind of milestones. So that's number one thing which we kind of uh, uh, guide leaders. And then we go to the next step in the strategies. How are you gonna do that? I think that can itself be a, quite a big topic. We say build an ecosystem, which is speed enabling ecosystem. I can elaborate more, uh, Kevin, if you need. Well, you know, one of the things that I was just thinking about is that when you're talking with the CEOs and these big time guys, they come in these big black cars and, and they've got bodyguards and they make a ton of money and all of that kind of thing. And, and you're sitting in a room with them. Does the subject, which I'm real passionate about, does the subject of turnover come up? Uh, very much turnover comes up because here is the thing. Most of the leaders it still don't have a good idea about turn, turn around that why our employees are leaving. And I give them a very simple model. Simple model is that the employees come from their home with the intentions to do good work. And they want to walk back home uh, feeling pride, taking the pride in the work. They want to go back home and taking a sense of achievement with them that today I did a great work. I contributed something. So what happens is that if employees are not reaching to the point, what we call first time right outcome, they are not going to feel that sense of achievement they are not going to feel that they're contributing. So now in some industries, for example, semiconductor, these engineers typically take about three years to reach that first time right outcome. Now imagine it for three years, this person is not getting the kind of sense of contribution or sense of achievement, what he really wanted to get. Now for three years, if we don't engage this person, if we don't get that sense of achievement, this person is gonna leave someday because he doesn't feel good about the job is doing. And that's the foundational reason why people leave. It's financial aspect and other aspects, those are going to come secondary. But the number one thing is people do a job for themselves, for their own sense of achievement or contribution. Now, when we say that, let's shorten that time. Let's shorten that time. If you shorten that time, people start feeling the sense of achievement faster. They stay with the company, they contribute, and you're never going to have that problem of uh, turn around ever. You know, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's, it's the money. I need to make more money. But if you look, if you talk to somebody um, and you do put it on the list of the things of why they leave, money is not the number one or the number two or the number three. It's job satisfaction. It's, it's culture. It's community. It's all of those things that the human animal needs. And what some companies have a trouble understanding is that the higher your turnover, the less chance of you ever getting to the speed that you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's also right. It's, I think it's a cash 22 situation. Is if you don't create the speed of employee development, you're going to get into turnaround situation. 
there's going to be a large number of employees who are going to leave. Now, the other side of that one is that in order to avoid uh, they leaving the company, you're going to need to speed up that entire process. But then at the same time, if you're bringing a lot of workforce, if you can't control turnaround, that means the only choice you got is you're going to need to hire from external market at a much higher rate. You're going to need to keep bringing the people. But when you keep bringing the people, if you don't give these new people sense of achievement faster, they're going to leave eventually. So you need to, you are in that cycle, which is never going to end. Um, but most leaders don't really invest in that particular part. And that's why that cycle of turnaround keep uh, repeating again and again. I used to tell, I was in management for a long time, and I used to tell uh, my assistant managers, I, I would say, look, if we lose a good employee, if we lose a key employee, it's going to take us three to four to five hires to get somebody of equal quality. And so we need to protect these people, and we need to give them a sense of worth and, and make sure that they can make some decent money so that they can they, they feel good about coming to work and then they want to stay here. Um, that's, a, that's a real important part of running a successful business, isn't it? That's right. That's right. It is. Uh, because uh, now what is happening is there's another piece to this one. The shelf life of skills is going down. So now it's going so much squeezed down during the pandemic, particularly. Um, every leader, every manager, they expected their employees to come up to speed on newer kind of skills uh, within about three to six months. So now uh, another research also tells us that time to market of new product services also going down. Now customer expect a new smartphone, new gadget within about uh, six months time frame. They want to replace their old gadget. So time to market is also going down equally uh, at the same rate. So the question is, if skills are obsoleting at that rate, time to market is squeezing down, what's the choice we got? The choice we got is either we keep our existing employees and because they got a lot of experience, we're going to need to still reskill them after every six months. But the thing is, if you got new employees now, now your game is totally different. You're going to need to bring that person a certain level of experience and then you have to reskill that person again and again. So you, as you said, it's much wiser to keep the seasoned employee as long as you can. It's it's uh, remarkable that uh, some some companies don't don't get that, but they are. They're going to have to because the the uh, the um, you know I've been told that the the workforce is changing and that the employee is now more uh, free to move to other places and things. So when that happens, and employers feel like they can't get good employees and i in our country i see uh, job openings you know help wanted signs everywhere uh, because nobody can find enough good employees and a lot of it's because of the culture within that uh, building that they're not able to pay and they're not able to do the thing so i think everybody should read your book that's what i think Thank you. Yeah, uh, I think there are a lot of factors uh, going around right now, which I kind of also captured in the book, is that uh, you can't really think that your existing employees are always forever is going to be uh, expert. They are not. Within six months to one year, they're also not going to be expert on the things they have never seen yet. Uh, during the pandemic, some of the employees even struggled with very simple technology. And every day there are new things are coming up. So from that angle, you know, it's not really important. Uh, what the, the current issue is obviously the labor crunch. But even if you have a lot of labor which you can hire, it's not going to solve the problem. 
unless we shorten that cycle of development of new people as well as existing people. Because existing people, they also need reskilling at exact same rate as market. Now, it's, what's to prevent a company from saying, all right, um, you've got a certain skill, but I need you to have more skills. So that means that in order to get that more skill, you're going to have to work 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week in order to get that done. Because the company's saying, no, nah, you, you need to have these skills and I can't afford to, to train you or to pay you to do that. Um, then that doesn't that also cause the employee a great deal of stress and eventually he's going to say phooey on that's a technical term phooey yeah yeah you know that's what happens isn't it it happens in fact that is the the foundational cause uh you pinpointed very well uh in my research i found that uh, i I asked these guys what was your number one the the biggest challenge why you were going slow before you eventually speed up the employee development And their answer was, we were giving our employees too much to learn, too much to do, and too much to perform. So part of this one is, for instance, one company, uh, what they did is they looked at the data. They gathered the data for the last five years, and they did a Pareto on that data. And they figured out that only 30% of the things were actually happening more frequently, which they were teaching their employees or they were asking their employees to master remaining 70% of the things were very low frequency, probably happening once every three years or once every five years. Now, the thing is, their training programs are so stuffy because they taught them all 100% things. Just in case it happens, you're going to need to use the skills. So their program become very big, very long. And now employees need to learn things which they are not going to see for five years. So eventually what happens is that they gotta need to spend a lot of time. They're never gonna become master because they have been learning the thing that's not happening. If things are not happening, they're never gonna get be able to get practice or exposure and they will never become master. That's number one. And the second part of that one is um, most of the managers and employees, they don't really look at the job scope and they have employees do a lot of things. And when we go out of scope creep, I would say there is a scope creep for the job description as well, then employees don't have enough time to learn and they're never going to be able to master that. So because of all these two factors, what have it time taken to become master or good in the job is kind of infinite. And that is a very uh, big equation that challenges the norm that how managers can be educated to make sure that the job definitions, job scopes are slim and prim. Because when, once we give them a proper sequence or proper path, in their job, they're going to be going there faster. And they'll be happier and they'll do it better. Yeah, they will be better because here's the thing. Today, if you give me the work, which I can do very well because I got skills, I got interest, and I know next day morning I'm going to get a sense of achievement, accomplishing it, and I go back home happier. That automatically generate engagement, it automatically generate uh, uh, what we call as a loyalty, retention and everything. We don't need to do those uh, luxurious, glamorous engagement surveys. That those things are just on paper kind of thing. These are the foundational equations that very quickly turn into retention and loyalty. I used to uh, laugh at uh, my employers when they would have a team building day. 
You know, they invite they invite this group of guys that came in and and they're they're professional at at doing team building and and us playing games and uh, having a good time and building camaraderie in in. But that's not where the camaraderie happens. Where it happens is on the floor every day of the work that you're doing. Isn't that right? And that's uh, correct. I just uh, wrote one article. It got published in a magazine. Um, the theme of that article is leadership is personal again. So when in my organization, in my workplace, I ask this question to people, what you do in this team building exercise? Do you do same thing with your kid or with your wife, with your spouse or at home with your family member? Answer is no. What do you do there? You are being personal and you use a lot of emotions. You use a lot of connection. You use a lot of empathy. And that's where you bring in that sense of uh, uh, being belonging to something or somebody. And that's exactly what is needed at the workplace. We don't need these high profile consultant or team building uh, companies to come and build the team. That's not the way the teams are built. Teams are built when leadership is personal and it comes from their own personal philosophy, connection, and more importantly, during pandemic, the biggest trait that leaders have you know, kind of gone with and they won their people's heart was empathy. And if we don't um, apply all those things uh, and those activities, fun game, uh, those are very short-lived uh, bonding. It is, it is so difficult. I, I get it. Uh, you, you work your, your uh, career and you rise to a level of being a manager and uh, you think that you really are pretty cool and all that, uh, but you forget about how you got there and how you felt when you were an employee and that uh, having the manager walk up to you and say, how are you doing today? How can I make your job better? How can I make your that, – that adds a lot to the employee as far as everything that they do, and uh, that, that builds a company and builds, builds a camaraderie with everybody because we're all in this together. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's perfectly right. Uh, I just uh, wrote one uh, article. It's called uh, – it's more about first-time managers. And most first-time managers are very anxious because um, they want to look good to the upstream management or leadership. At the same time, they want to be liked and respected by their direct reports. And they are into this sandwich position, which is not nice to have, really. But then what happens is that then the organization, most organizations, they teach them textbook philosophy of uh, you should be uh, you know, dealing with employees this way or that way, uh, create your leadership style, and all those things, you know, on paper looks all glamorous. But what, what happens is most of the first-time managers, they forget the entire thing that how their real personality is. When they manage, let's say, the wedding of their, their brother at their home, they don't use those kind of textbook philosophy. They go personal. So that has been my recommendation to most of the first-time manager that just be who you are as a person. You don't need to learn any glamorous philosophy about leadership. You're going to be bringing the leaders from within yourself. I always found that the best leaders are the ones who understood what the employee was going through and uh, sympathized with them and had empathy for them and worked and worked really hard to make sure that the, each person in their direct report, they could make them the best that they could be. They look at their skills, they look at who they are, and they say, this is 
what I would love to see you be able to do and to work with them to do that. Is that is that a out there philosophy? I really think that, that what you're talking about, Doctor, is, by the way, we're talking with Dr. Rama Atta, and he's written like 20 books. He's, he's a, an expert at what we're talking about. And the name of the book that we're talking about now, say it again for us, please. It's a Speed Matters. Speed Matters. And if you want to go get that book, you can go to Amazon and you can go to his website, which is? RamanKatri.com. And it's, it's, the, the, I looked at that website today. It's got a ton, an absolute ton of, of nuggets of information that you, that you can use to take with you. If you're an employer... If you are a business manager, uh, you could do really well by listening to what this fine man has to say because he's been he's been employed by Fortune 500 companies to come in and to work with them to improve, you know, lower turnover, improve productivity, figure out how to get the job done better, faster. Because in this environment, in the, these days, and you can tell better than I, you have less time to do more. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So time, time is a currency now. It's the new currency. And whatever we can achieve within that time, uh, that makes the whole difference. Uh, and uh, particularly in this pandemic situation, the way we look at it, lots of businesses and uh, organizations, they lost their position. They lost their customer. They lost a sale because um, historically they have only taught their managers and leader how to get things faster but they were never able to induct this entire thing about a speed enabling ecosystem. And they never groomed their employees and managers how to learn faster. So now what's gonna happen is after a pandemic, the companies or organizational businesses who can really equip their leaders and employees to learn faster and be ahead of the market, they are truly gonna be ahead of market. Admittedly, other people are gonna follow because they're gonna also turn smarter. But these companies who can make a headway, they're going to still be ahead of the game for a quite long time. So it's very important now. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of, a lot of um, executives are a little bit older. Uh, and they, they remember the day when people went to work for a company and they worked for the company for 40 years and, and that the job was relatively the same at the end of their time as it was in the beginning of their time. Them's days is long gone, and training and 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 learning and and positive motivation, all of those things are not just woo-woo things. Those come into play a lot more, don't they? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I think the, the attention span is pretty uh, small now. Secondly, thing is that people need constant motivation. Uh, in the olden times, people were motivated because they were getting something out of those jobs. But now people's expectations have changed. They want a lot of other things from their career. And unfortunately, the jobs in organization, those are not that fulfilling all the time. So then these guys keep looking for certain sources of uh, motivation or inspiration somewhere else. And that's also the one reason why people are leaving. Um, but the part of that one is the jobs itself are becoming complex, which I think is okay. Okay, because that keeps people more interested. What's coming next? Because things are unpredictable. But at, at the same time, while they have the unpredictability, they got some challenge which they're going to need to solve, never seen before, which keep them on the heels, keep learning, keep learning something new. But uh, they also need to be motivated with all these new changes. 
And uh, I think there are certain set of employees, those who don't feel comfortable with that. And uh, that's such a challenge. But otherwise, I think the workplace has changed drastically. Now, one of the things that's been uh, circulating around in the United States is, and it's in Congress now, is they're talking about, or they were talking about, and I think it just got off the table, extending uh, education rather than a 12-year high school education paid for by the government, that they would extend it to, like, uh, community college or even beyond that. In, in this day and age, we pretty much have got to make that investment in our youth, don't you? or do we? Uh, yes, certainly. I think uh, that's uh, definitely needed. I mean, I came from pretty long uh, traditional kind of uh, education, and uh, I think education has its own value. And in the olden time, it definitely had. But now the context is slightly changing. And I participated in a panel uh, some days back. The, the topic was if the degrees are relevant, whether the people should go for their higher education or degrees immediately, or should they do something else? And it's a very controversial, very debatable topic, in fact. And uh, what we say now is that we're gonna need to invest on youth, certainly, but more than education, we're gonna need to give them experience. And our education system is not designed for giving that experience to our youth because now the environment is so different. Even the organizations are working dynamically different. Whatever they teach in the books, organizations do not do the work the same way. And so every the education, the meaning of education needs to be maintained there by incorporating uh, the correct design and bringing the experience. And part of that one is, you know, why don't we allow our youth to start something, start some initiative, could be an NGO, could be a, you know, kind of service, could be a business, could be a startup, anything. And then they continue their education. But our education model currently does not support that kind of uh, experience-based uh, encounters for youth. But I guess uh, traditional education is no longer, not longer really successful. It needs to be revisited because it needs to be given the education corresponding to what you're doing rather than doing what you studied about. Exactly. Well, <laughs> well most of the time, most of the time, and, and it's, you're absolutely right. In, in the profession that I was in, I was in the um, uh, food service industry, and uh, that doesn't get taught in schools. Um, you have no earthly idea how to do what, you know, and they don't teach you things like, they teach you uh, uh, trigonom trigonometry or, or algebra, but they don't teach you how to figure out a food cost or how to figure out or to, to do a basic P&L or to do some of these in, or to balance your checkbook. That's a, that's a big one for me is that the, the kids today are don't get the financial stuff in school that they, yeah. that they will need for everyday life. Um, how, how does your bank work? How to say, how to, how to do a checking account, how to do all that kind of stuff. And, and, and plus the fact that, um, we've got in our country, a, 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 a real problem with finding, um, trade school type individuals. So work in mechanics and plumbers and electricians and stuff like that. We have a severe and truck drivers were way short of them that requires a CDL. So we are not, we're not focusing on the right things. Um, yeah. And that's, and that's going to be a problem for us long-term, isn't it? Yeah, it is going to be. There is another aspect. I just want to kind of make a point uh, on what you was just saying. Um, most of the schools, they are teaching people unrealistically. 
I came across one example in my research and they, they hired lots of financial analysts. And typically financial analysts, uh, they are uh, taught in, uh, in, on a computer in front of screen. There are some IT geeks guys who's gonna be training them and they teach them every single thing that how you're gonna plot the charts, how you're gonna look at the data, how you're gonna sl slice the data, every single thing. And these guys are very learned guys. They come up with great degrees and qualifications. And imagine what, when they are hired and, and this company I'm talking about, most of their financial analysts failed. The reason they failed is the part of financial analyst job is to be in the boardroom and present it to CEOs. And now imagine the boardroom, you've got a high pressure situation. You need to convince your executive about certain financial decisions. And these things are not taught to them anywhere. They were only taught how to be on the computer screen doing the analysis, but how to present and negotiate and convince your executive, that's a whole different level working under that stress and pressure. Now, these things are not taught in our schools because our schools focus mostly on then one dimensional uh, skill. Whereas in the workplace, the skill set is multidimensional. You need to be good in emotional quotient. You need to be good in negotiation. You should have the ability to be present to your executive, take certain level of pressure and able to give business recommendations. Now, those things in an all-rounded fashion, no school gives us. So that's a big failure on that part. That's one thing. But on the other side of the game is that when we talk about the trade schools, those, their school skills are pretty much hands-on which is of course pretty great, but it's a life skill. If something goes bad, you can always depend upon those skills and make your earnings. But then they teach it from an angle, uh, from a trade. It does not, they do not teach it from making it as a career and you know, grow it as a business, grow it as a you know, kind of much larger than what they originally intend. So I think there is a gap on both sides of the game. I, I couldn't agree more because if you're going to be a really good mechanic and eventually you want to open up your own shop and you have no oh. idea how to do that, uh, then then you're going to fail. That, that's uh, that's correct. That's right. I mean, that's, there was one example I came across is that uh, um, the guy came out of this mechanical school. He was a great car mechanic and uh, he, he was pretty good technically. He would repair any possible car that come across. But uh, despite that, all that, he couldn't really start the business. The thing is, he doesn't know how I am going to really compute these things that my profit and loss, how much investment I'm making as a person, should I delegate that one to somebody else? So there is the whole business aspect around that trade. That doesn't come that natural. And most of the schools, they won't teach it. That's right. Well, in a lot of cases, those skills are contrary to what they what what fits in their brain is a mechanical mind. What fits in a business is a completely different set of of, of, uh, of skills. Yeah, that's right. That, that makes it that makes it really tough. So you've been on TED Talks. You've been all over the world. What's 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 next for you? What are you going to do now? I'm excited to know. I thank you, uh, Kevin. Uh, right now, I'm kind of doing a lot of uh, things. I mean, I think I done my first spree of books. Uh, there are still about ten books in the pipeline, but I'm gonna take a little pause before I write those ten. But in the meantime, I'm working on a, something called ExpertX Forum. It's a forum I established, and I wanna expand that one. The idea of this forum is to basically enable people how to learn better 
and faster. And uh, this came back from my bad experiences. I mean, as you see that I have over 100 international degrees and credentials, I have gone through the best and the worst, both sides of the education and, and the training. So I realized one thing that in our schools, colleges, universities, we are being taught English, geography, you know, mathematics, uh, every sort of subject, but there is nobody who's teaching how to learn better and how to learn faster. There's not even a single teacher who will teach you those kind of skill set. And uh, these, are, these are subject matter experts, those who give us these, you know, expertise on the subject, but uh, do they teach us how to learn better? I think we learn by struggling. And we struggle a lot, and every one of us, isn't it? So I wanted to set up a forum, a platform where people can get more proven, uh, tested method, how they can learn anything better and how they can learn anything faster. I think time is a very uh, great essence because everyone wanna save the time and we can use that time somewhere else more productively if we can learn things faster, if we can master a certain domain or a new job quickly. For example, if let's say that today I don't have a job, and if I need to switch my career and gonna go into a new job, if it takes me years and years to master it, my earnability will go down. What if I, somebody tells me how to master new skills quickly, how to master the new job in a faster time? I possibly can be back on my feet again. So those kind of basic skills, basic life skills, because everyone wants to learn and learning is foundational to our life but nobody's investing on teaching people how to learn better. So that's my plan to expand my forum further. I think that's awesome because, you know, quite frankly, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, if you can learn faster, you can uh, progress better and faster, but also it gives you a sense of power. If, if you believe that you can actually learn something and that, that nothing is going to stand in your way, that you can get it done because you know how, it seems to make a lot of sense that it empowers people. Yeah, that's right. Um, there is another piece to that one. I think the learning is the foundational thing, but as a human beings, uh, we all want to excel in our life. Of course. And uh, sometimes learning is uh, underrated, right? But the learning is a continuous process. But it, many people don't know how to transform the learning or leverage the learning to gain the excellence, what you're really striving for in your life. So I think that's another kind of journey I somehow wanna connect. That's why I kept the name of my forum, Expert X, which basically means accelerate excellence. So that's my goal. But also, it also presents uh, you with the opportunity to have balance in your life um, because you need to have a good family life. You need to take care of your kids. You, and you've got all these things you need to do, and and if you're if you're trying to get ahead or trying to learn something and you and you can't learn it very quickly, then you then that takes over a major part of your life, and everything else suffers because of it. Balance is yeah. the key. That's right. I call it a resonance. Uh, I gave a talk uh, some years back. I said, you know, ultimately, as human beings, we strive for this resonance which is uh, basically alignment between our personal and our professional personality. If we can resonate these two personalities together, our overall performance get amplified and we feel happy, satisfied, and more content with what's happening. You know, I could talk to you for hours because this is the, the, 
we're talking about the philosophy of of business and being able to help people because uh, there's a, there's a guy in town. Um, I don't know if you know him or not. His name is Pete Carroll. He's the coach of the Seattle Seahawks, and he's got an interesting philosophy about coaching that is different than than most everybody else. And it's it's uh, it's uh, player based. It's I want you to be the best that you can be at what you do, and I'm going to help you win at being that. It sounds like that's a lot of your philosophy as well in everything that you do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, personally, you know, performance is something I always respect, and uh, I always kind of respect the people who can put up a great performance, but at the same time, people who want to learn for performance that those want to learn and want to produce something out there, whether for their family or for their employer, for their business, or in general for society. So I think that's the kind of thing I'm moving into. So I I have been kind of refraining away from coaching for a long while, but then finally people said, you know, Rama, you got so many things you have done. I think you should start coaching people. So then now I have finally decided, I'm go, okay, I will start mentoring people, giving them a little bit more all-rounding, rounded experience, I would say, to make them better performers. Do you have any idea how much people will pay to talk to somebody like you with the experience and, and skills that you have to make, to help them learn faster and better? You can be, you could do very, very well in doing that. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin. I mean, so far, I mean, for many, many years, I have done it pro bono. I have done it out of my free will. Um, I, I, I thought everyone should progress. Everyone should go ahead. Uh, but then when you do free, at the same time, sometime your expertise may not get valued. And uh, uh, you're not like, you know, there are people out there who are struggling. And uh, not only this one from learning standpoint, even from a limitation standpoint, I see a lot of people get into some kind of mindset. They feel limited with their life. And even if I don't use my two PhDs or other things, even my own life experience of going through the disability, how I turn the things around is good enough to guide people to, to move forward. So, yeah. right. Absolutely. By the way, we're talking with uh, Raman Atta. Atri? Atri? Oh, goodness. And uh, if you haven't listened to this entire interview, and I really implore you to do that because there's some really great information that uh, doctors brought to us today, uh, you can go to uh, positivetalkradio.net, and this will be up in a, in uh, maybe this afternoon, depending on how fast Benny is, uh, this afternoon or first thing tomorrow, and then you can listen to it in its entirety. It's, it's worth every moment. So, uh, positivetalkradio.net. Go there. There's a bunch of different uh, podcasts that we've done. And uh, although this, I have to say, has been one of the uh, best hours we've done in, in, in quite some time because everything that uh, doctor's talking about is real. And it is it is can really help you on a fundamental level change your life and change how you are perceived by others and what you're doing. Would you concur with that, doctor? Uh, certainly. Thank you so much, Kevin, for uh, giving that shout out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of uh, tips I shared today about learning and performance and uh, speed. And uh, there are, of course, the, this is the endless field. You know, uh, you, we can keep uh, talking about this an hour for hours and hours. And there is so much uh, things there. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of things these days on social media, 
Um, those are, you know, good looking slides or good looking images keep floating. And most of those are myths or most of those things are not even scientifically correct or people haven't tested it. It simply looks beautiful and people start sharing it. And I think what's happening out there in social media is people are learning half-cooked things or probably incorrect things. So it's, it was my pleasure to sharing some of the things which I kind of tried in my life and I learned through my own research. So it was a privilege you know, talking to you and being able to deliver to your audience. Are you telling me that, that there are things in social media that are not correct? Oh, be still my foolish heart. I had no idea. <laughs> because social media works like this way you know if the uh, you're gonna uh, somebody's gonna send you a picture and you say wow it looks beautiful and it is you know kind of these days most of the people have fairly good writing skills and uh, it might be pretty impressive and uh, these influencers these guys are very experienced in doing those kind of things but that question comes: is it even true is is science backing it up whether there are any evidence has people actually tried it out? So there is a lots and lots of those things going around. People create their own quotes. People create their own charts and diagrams and models. And then they say, oh, this is a proven system. Um, but who proved it? Uh, so most of the time, uh, social media is a misinformation rather than scientific information or something that comes out of people's experience. You know, what's, what's really sad is that uh, we have it in all segments of our society. They now have something called auto-tune so that you don't have to be a singer to be a singer. Um, they, they do body shopping of, of the pictures to make you look skinnier and, and healthier and, and better. So we, it's finding out what's really real is, is becoming more and more difficult all the time because you're, you're getting bombarded with stuff that may or may not be real or true. Yeah, that's right. It's get amplified on social media. I typically refrain from social media despite uh, all my background and network. I'm not very active on social media because at some point I found that the things which people are kind of sharing with me floating around, even I don't just believe those things. I, I think it's no, those are not believable. So there's no point to, you know, kind of absorbing all that misinformation. So I kind of stayed on with my research producing something which is useful for to people where people can, you know, it works. It worked in every single organization. It worked for so many million people. It's going to work for me as well. And of course, uh, there are things that are always going to be contextual and situational. Not everything out there in the market is going to work for you. But there has to be a sort of a validation system that, okay, is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? Is it dependable? Is it going to work? It has it worked for other people. And uh, what are the probability that it's going to work for me? So then people can make decisions. I would virtually be willing to say that the reason you're not on social media is because you're smart <laughs> and you've done a lot of research and you figured out that there's a lot of uh, stuff that's less than less than honorable, less than popular, less than less than really good information out there. But and we're going to end up having to go. But Dr. Raman K. Atra and his latest book is Speed Matters. Speed Matters. Go get the book. It's at Amazon. He's got 20 books out there. Go to his website, which again is RamanKAtri.com. RamanKAtri.com. And he's got tons of information there. I want to thank you for being here, and you'll need to come back. And we're going to be here every Monday at 9. 
and Wednesdays at 4. And, Benny, I just want to say thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody, and take care, and we'll see you next time.